This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Kompsik in for Libby Zneimer. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. Taking you back 50 years when all eyes were on the moon and the man who first set foot on it and the one who followed just minutes later. A former Canadian astronaut will share his recollections about the Apollo 11 landing and predict where men and women will go next and when. And the latest ideas and research to come out at the largest annual gathering on Alzheimer's and dementia that's just wrapped up out in L.A., But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A Second World War codebreaker has been selected as the new face of the British 50 note as the Bank of England celebrates the UK's scientific achievements. Alan Turing was many things, a war hero and a visionary mathematician, considered the father of computer science and artificial intelligence. He was convicted under Victorian-era homophobic laws and castrated for being gay. He took his life in 1954 and 60 years after his death received a royal pardon. A long-lost love letter from the Second World War has been uncovered in a Montreal home. A woman renovating her home found old newspapers and some personal love letters from a Canadian soldier to his wife that were in mint condition. She shared a photo of the letter on social media And it didn't take long to track down Lieutenant Robert McFarland's son, Bruce, who showed up at his childhood home the very next day. McFarland was just 12 when his father died, and through this letter, dated May 1943, saw a side of his father he had never known. Yeah, it was hard for me to kind of compromise. I think I wasn't really marriage material. Diane Keaton has not been on a date in 35 years, and she's okay with that. The 73-year-old Academy Award-winning actress, who has two adopted children and has never married, but has had romantic relationships with Woody Allen, Warren Beatty, and Al Pacino. Keaton says she's happy being single and admits she's glad she never married because she simply wasn't built for it. The Queen is apparently a foodie. Royal Family is hiring a new chef to deliver food to the highest standards. Buckingham Palace posted the job ad that pays 36000 Canadian a year on its website, and it even offers a live-in option and travel to other royal residences. Buckingham Palace is home to state banquets, and the role is presumed to include catering for the lavish state affairs. A former royal chef who cooked for the royal family for 15 years revealed that the queen always keeps her favorite chocolate biscuit cake close at hand, but she refuses to reveal her favorite meal to avoid being served it constantly. I'm Bob Comsican for Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. we got a beautiful picture, you guys, up down there. Let me tell you, Bob, this flag is a beautiful picture. It's in uh, It's beautiful. This has got to be one of the most proud moments of my life, I guarantee you. A milestone anniversary to mark when man met the moon. 
Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin made history 50 years ago, July 20th, 1969, during a decade that was as much about the space race as it was music and changing social norms. Our first guest followed the American astronauts to space 27 years later. Former Canadian astronaut Bob Thirsk is on the line. Armstrong, Aldrin, Collins. Is this why you wanted to become an astronaut? Yes. Um, I was uh, inspired by an even earlier astronaut, uh, John Glenn. Uh, In 1962, he orbited the Earth, and I think that was the first time in my life where I realized that uh, this realm called space existed and uh, that the profession of astronaut existed. And I decided, I think back then, that I wanted to um, become an astronaut. But you're absolutely right. From um, the, the, the 1960s were dominated by the Apollo uh, moon landing program. Everything was focused on getting to the moon before uh, the end of the decade, as uh, President John F. Kennedy uh, recommended. And um, so Aldrin, Armstrong, Collins, uh, they, were, they were heroes of mine. Their, their exploits were something that inspired me to, to go beyond what, um, what my childhood dreams had initially dictated. At any point, did you waver? It was uh, the 60s and, and, and the early 70s were a magical time for society. You know, it wasn't just science and tech, but it was also education and, and civil rights and entertainment and music, everything. The, the world seemed to be moving quite fast back then. And, and I think that... You know, Bob, there's probably hundreds of thousands of young Canadians that were inspired by the by the moon program. Yes, it was um, uh, a U.S. initiative. It was a NASA program. But uh, I think that, you know, everyone around the world watched uh, the moon landings, and uh, we all felt that it was humanity that was leaving the planet and uh, heading to another celestial um, body, and it was euphoric for, um, for all of us. Uh, when I... Uh, eventually uh, realized that it was only Americans and Soviets that were flying in space. Yeah, the, the dream went to the back of my brain. Uh, it rested there for um, a, a few years, but uh, eventually when I reached my career age, um, it was time for Canada to begin its own astronaut program, and um, that early fascination with the space program uh, fortunately directed me in an educational path that was very well aligned with space exploration, so I was fortunate to be chosen as one of Canada's first astronauts. I can recall where I was when Armstrong set foot on the moon. I was in a vehicle with my parents coming back from a weekend uh, outing. remember hearing the the crackling uh, news on the radio and the transistor lit up in the dark vehicle as we were heading home. What about you? Can you remember as clearly as that? Absolutely. Uh, The Apollo moon landing, the Apollo 11 moon landing, was one of those uh, events where you know uh, where you were, who you were with, and you can recall every moment of the the event. I was on vacation with my parents in Kelowna, B.C., and uh, we were in a, a living room. I was watching... Uh, the program, was, you probably remember the, the small black and white TV sets, low-resolution TV images of Neil and Buzz bounding around on the, on the lunar surface in their white spacesuits. Uh, those f- fuzzy images held my attention and fired my imagination. I ran back and forth between um, the living room and its TV set and the yard outside with its view of the moon, you know, trying to comprehend exactly what was going on. So your parents didn't think that you were on some kind of a sugar high, just running around back and forth. They probably enjoyed seeing the enthusiasm that you were displaying, but probably thinking, that's nice that our Bob would like to do that, but 
who knows if that'll ever happen and lo and behold it did you know everyone was uh, pausing to to watch uh, the tv everyone was uh, was blown away um it was mind-boggling uh, event that was taking place uh, but you're right. You know, my, my parents uh, probably thought it was just something of, uh, of interest to me, but um, uh, a spark was ignited, you know, and um, for one of those thousands of Canadians that were watching that TV transmission, it, it was more than just a, of passing interest. It, it uh, played a fundamental influencing role in my educational path and my career. With Michael Collins up there while Armstrong and Aldrin were down there, and he's up there orbiting... Can you try to relate to us how exciting from his vantage point it might have been, but also maybe how scary it would have been maybe for himself plus for them? There's all kinds of contingencies that can occur during spaceflight, uh, Bob. We always have to plan for the worst. And, and one of the you know, the things that I'm sure is going through Michael Collins' mind was what happened if Buzz and, um, and Neil don't make it back? Then um, he's going to have to leave lunar orbit on his own and head back to Earth, and that would be a... A very sad day. But, of course, that did not happen. Um, the, the astronauts were well-trained. The technology was, was well-developed, and it was, the mission was a complete success. We're looking back at what happened 50 years ago with the first moon landing. Looking forward, gaze into your astronauts' crystal ball. What do you think will be the next big thing in space. There are going to be many more space exploration uh, exploits. Uh, the next giant leap in exploration will be to deep space, so uh, a return to the moon in probably about five years, to an asteroid in about 10 years, and then on to Mars in about 15 years. Uh, our grandchildren, Bob, may explore the ice moons of Jupiter and Saturn, And then who knows, uh, perhaps our great-great-grandchildren will voyage to interstellar destinations. We don't have the rocket technology for that right now, but I think in the next 100 years or so we will develop it. Um, Earth is is just a cradle, and uh, I think the Apollo 11 mission and that series of moon landings uh, taught that to us. Um, It... um, it gave us the thought that uh, maybe we should redefine the word humanity. Uh, we should reconsider our planet as, as being a cradle and to consider humanity's role to one day leave this home, this cradle, and to populate other worlds with uh, with life from, from Earth. That's I think, is probably going to be one of the, the legacies of the Apollo mission that it taught us that um, we have to redefine what the word humanity means. It means that um, Earth is just a cradle, and we have a destiny to uh, to leave this home and to explore and populate other worlds. Former Canadian Space Agency astronaut Bob Thirsk, thanks for your time. Thanks, Bob. About 50 million people worldwide with dementia will be interested to hear about what came out of a big conference in L.A. that's just concluded. Experts and scientists shared the latest findings on research in the field. Now one of them is here to share them with you. The medical director of the Toronto Memory Program, Dr. Sharon Cohen. It was a fantastic meeting of over 6,000 people from 70 countries. Started off with a little bit of a gloomy mood because some promising Drugs have recently failed, but as the conference progressed, the understanding that there are more and more things coming, both in the way of early diagnosis and potential exciting treatments, really overtook the conference. I think it was a very successful meeting. You were talking about early diagnosis. Anything new in that area? 
Yes, there's a lot new. We know that we miss about 50% of people with Alzheimer's. That's how shocking the numbers are, that we underdiagnose by about 50%. And of those that we are sure, even in expert hands, have Alzheimer's disease, we're wrong about 30% of the time. That's astounding. And how is that going to work once we have, and we will eventually have, a definitive treatment? How are we going to identify the people who can benefit? So we have, in the last few years, had fancy things like PET amyloid scans with tracers that can pick up very early on proteins that change in Alzheimer's, and we can do the same thing with the spinal tap. But we are going to need some really accessible, less expensive uh, methodology. And now things are being detected in the blood that are equivalent with the same accuracy as in the spinal fluid or on PET scans. And there will be a blood test for Alzheimer's disease within the next year or so, uh, not just to diagnose, but also other blood tests coming that can tell us more about, are you a fast progressor in this disease or do you have lots of time? Are you somebody who's got 20 years with this disease rather than you know, being over and done with and needing long-term care within five years? So things that can track progress of disease and hopefully monitor response to treatment the way we have in cancer medicine. And in the cases we think have Alzheimer's disease and we're wrong, there are other diseases of the brain that can mimic Alzheimer's, and without being able to detect with a blood test or a special scan that this is in fact not Alzheimer's, people get mislabeled. And that's why with the blood tests, which can confirm it, and you're saying in about a year or so, you think blood tests will be more mainstream. Yes, Yes, and this will be a huge advance because not everybody in the world who's struggling with, you know, is my forgetfulness Alzheimer's or am I at risk is going to have access to a PET scan. It's expensive, and even if you had the money, you can't always access a PET scan. They're in specialized centers. So this would be a a huge advance in the field, early detection. The conference that you were at out in L.A. also heard about clues as to why women may be more likely to develop Alzheimer's? Yes, we're trying to piece that together. We know that women live longer, and we used to say, well, it's an age-related disease, women live longer, that accounts for why we see more women. But now there's more research into hormonal factors and other factors in the brain that might allow the spread of these toxic proteins to move faster, actually, in women compared with men. So it's not entirely worked out, but there seems to be more than just the age factor. Dr. Cohen, what about the immune system and the role it plays in maybe one day coming up with a a cure? This is fascinating. We've known that in association with plaques in the brain from Alzheimer's, there are inflammatory cells. And we've thought that's just a byproduct of the disease. Now we know that the innate immune system in the brain plays a very active role in driving the disease. And it might be that amyloid is the first protein that accumulates, but then you get a whole host of immune reactions that either work well or don't to determine whether we're going to progress further. So the immune system is responsible for getting rid of junk in the brain, including amyloid. That has to work well. But the immune system, when it's overactive, can generate its own toxic substances that can make brain cells die more rapidly. So now we understand this better, not only do we understand the the biology, but we are developing drugs in the treatment pipeline that will tackle and either suppress or rev up the immune system, depending what aspect we're targeting. And hopefully these will be a new generation. So not just looking now at tackling amyloid or tau, 
but the actual immune system that may be very, very important in generating the disease to begin with. That was Dr. Sharon Cohen, Medical Director of the Toronto Memory Program. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Bob Komsik in for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.